Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Russia can continue to sell its commodities to the world, then it's it's not going to be in serious risk economically. So, in the in that environment, Russia's saying, "Yeah, we're we we can sit back and 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 let the the political will in the West die." Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we're joined by Matthew Orr, who is a Eurasian analyst at RAIN, which stands for Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. In this episode, we take a look at the first anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine. Please note this episode was recorded just before the first anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine. Unfortunately, it was delayed because I was ill, but there are many, many interesting points in this episode that still stand, so please do give it a listen, and I hope you find it interesting. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Matthew, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you back on. For the benefit of maybe new listeners, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a Eurasia analyst uh, at RAIN, which stands for Risk Assessment Network and Exchange, and I cover um, basically a whole broad spectrum of risks related to the Eurasia region, so political mm. risk, e- economic, uh, geopolitical, you name it. Um, so yeah, I basically follow events uh, out in the region and try to inform uh, our clients and our, our readers about them. We're approaching the terrible first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I was wondering if you had any kind of overarching thoughts as we approached this anniversary. Yeah, as we approached this anniversary, you know, I obviously recall this time last year, and I, I remember coming on your your, your podcast um, a, a couple months ago and, 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 and talking about some, some of these issues. But um, Right. I mean, the the reasons why we didn't think that the full scale invasion was the most likely scenario um, have essentially borne out. Right. Uh, Russia's invasion plan, as threatened, you know, we 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 didn't think it was going to work, and, and it it clearly did not uh, work uh, go according to plan. Um, and now, you know, Russia has really mired itself uh, in the in this conflict uh, by objective standards. I mean, this is. I mean, this is really not even comparable to similar conflicts that Russia has been in since World War II, right? The the the, the comparison that comes to mind is the the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, but there we're only talking about a, a couple a couple tens of thousands of of casualties, and that was for the whole Soviet Union, right? With it with its population mm-hmm. of, of of well over three hundred million. Now we're talking about a, a much smaller Russia taking many 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 more casualties so that this is just such a, a, a the scale of this event is, re- is really not even comparable and it doesn't look like this has really been in russia's strategic interests the only prize in my estimation for the whole invasion that russia is cleaning clinging to is this ukrainian territory and not all of the ukrainian territory that it that it's claimed since the invasion specifically this land corridor to crimea um the the, the land bridge to crimea as it's sometimes called um the the incremental 
small territorial gains that Russia has made further east in the Donbass are of little importance to the Russian people or Russia's political leadership because these were, you know, uh, economically depressed towns and areas for, for a long time. Um, and while, you know, they provided an ideological justification for the war to help, you know, patri patriotically justify it, um, really all the only strategic prize has been this this land corridor to Crimea. And now that that corridor is is, is under target and under threat. Um, right now, there, I don't think that the corridor is at risk of being imminently retaken by the Ukrainians. Obviously, that's going to be the, the Ukrainians' goal this year. Um, but to me, it, it looks doubtful that the Ukrainians will retake it. Um, and so that, that allows Russia to kind of cling to this extremely minimalist justification or calling its, its war a victory. And so I think that that's why, you know, the, the for now, it, political stability is going to be maintained in Russia because the Russian people and elites will con continue to believe that the, that the invasion was still worth the cost. Um, so that, that's kind of where we are a year from now. Yeah, well, as as of today of our recording, Putin just gave a quite a, a lengthy speech about uh, his sort of motivations and feelings about the war. I don't know if you have any thoughts on Putin's sort of speech. It's just uh, happened. Yeah, I, I do. Um, so he there was a, two things that I really found notable about it. He returned at the very beginning of the speech. He kind of returned to a more maximalist rhetoric uh, about the the purposes of the invasion. We've seen that throughout the invasion, he's 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 fluctuated with all kinds of explanations um, and justifications for the war. At the very beginning, we all remember the famous demilitarization and, and denazification, um, which was essentially was, uh, you know, a threat of regime change. And now in this speech, he's kind of returned to that, where he basically indicated that re replacing the regime in Kiev was one of the goals of, of, of the war. But that Russia hadn't, he hadn't really been leaning into that rhetoric for months now. It, later, it became about liberating the Donbass. Then he even made comments that, well, look, we've we've already we've already achieved our strategic objectives because we've started, you know, um, becoming more sovereign, as he would say, and becoming less dependent on the West. So then he's almost decoupling actual results of the, you know, territorial gains or anything. He's just saying, oh, we've already won the invasion because we're decoupling from the West or whatever. But now but now it seems that he's kind of I, that was unpopular in Russia. And so I think that this return to maximalist rhetoric is mainly just about domestic politics. I don't think it's that he can actually achieve uh, a, a regime change in Kiev um, in, in the foreseeable future. And so that that's what I think that's really about. And then, of course, the other big announcement in the speech was that Russia is leaving um, the, the, the New START Treaty, um, the, the last major arms control treaty with the United States. Obviously, this is a big deal because this is, you know, the end of, of arms control as we know it since the 1960s, since the Cold War era. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's it's unclear exactly how things are going to develop further uh, from here. Uh, the, the treaty didn't have any—Putin said that they were suspe suspending their participation. Well, the treaty doesn't have anything about suspending participation, so essentially they're— they're leaving the treaty that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to start you know grow openly and grossly violating the treaty by you know deploying more nuclear uh, warheads or delivery systems than they're supposed to etc but yeah it opens the door for russia to start secretly violating the treaty and i think that the real goal of him announcing this is basically just a furthering of Ru russia's pre pre-war and previous rhetoric about arms control which is that russia wanted to use arms control as a mechanism to prompt a larger security dialogue with the, the United States and to a lesser extent the West in order to exchange concessions to the U.S. in arms control as they conceive them 
in exchange for Western concessions vis-a-vis Ukraine, U.S. concessions mm-hmm. vis-a-vis Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And of mm-hmm. course, the Americans were like, no, we, we, we've never tied arms control to, to like other things. Of course, we're not going to try, you know, tie arms control to Ukraine, which is an unrelated topic, etc. And this is about a whole big political gambit to do that, to try to force a broader dialogue in which arms control and Ukraine are essentially made as part of the same same negotiation. Is there a danger or an increased danger that now Russia might start giving nuclear technology to some of their, should we say, um, unsavory allies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that, that that threat has definitely risen since the invasion. Obviously, obviously, at the top of the list is Iran that we're, we're, we're watching for. You know, we, there's speculation on this. I'm I mean, I, I tend to think that if Russia had done something like that, it would have been it would have been on the front page of The Washington Post. As we say, because um, that's information that like U.S. intelligence services would have leaked immediately. So I, I tend to think that Russia hasn't done that yet. The strategic reasons why Russia, Russia wouldn't, you know, provide nuclear technology to, to Iran is that that would be very destabilizing to the Middle East region, um, as regional analysts would know, and it would anger a lot of Russia's own allies, um, the the countries that that Central Asia that that um, you know are close to Iran. Azerbaijan, most first and foremost, Turkey, this country that, that Putin mm. has put so much efforts into trying to maintain a close cooperative relationship with Turkey that the Turks would not like that with all Saudi Arabia, the UAE, et cetera. So there's a whole long list of, of countries that would not like this. And for, for me, um, it seems that Russia strategically calculated that, you know, this is not in their interest at this time. But look, it's there's public reporting that this is something the Iranians have asked for. They, they've asked for in exchange for all the drones and other uh, ballistic missiles that that Iran is is giving Russia to help the war in Ukraine, the Iranians would love help on 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 nuclear technology, and so it's definitely it's definitely something that they're the Russians are considering. Um, uh, but right now it looks like they're they're resisting that, and I tend to think that they will continue to for some time. But I totally recognize that it's a it's a very real possibility. Yeah. So on on Monday uh, we had President Joe Biden make a historic visit to Ukraine. Can you talk to us about what this may mean for the war going ahead? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean I it, for you know first and foremost it's a it's a pretty remarkable historic visit, right? Um, the the U.S. president visiting a country you know in an active full scale war um, with mm. you know a, a country that's often recognized as a superpower. Right. Um, given the, the context of, of all these events, um, a lot of people have already com- drawn comparisons to uh, President Kennedy's, uh, you know, uh, visit to Berlin during the during the 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 the, 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 the crisis there. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I think this is definitely a visit that, you know, is, go- is, go- is going to be going to be for the history books. Um, I mean, I think the problem is, is that, you know, despite the, vi- the visit's intention is to signal the U.S.'s long-term willingness to support Ukraine and presumably some confidence in the effect that our support, you know, is, is going to have in the long term, right? Because it would be embarrassing for a U.S. president to visit Kiev and then, you know, I don't know, a cu- couple of years later, then there then there's another, you know, a uh, different government there or, or Putin's won the war, etc. Um, the problem is, the problem, the, the very obvious constraint on all that is that we, we all know that, that you, you know, as in, you know, other countries... U.S. policy mm. fluctuates, um, and we we've mm. all, we you know if you follow U.S. politics, you see that the rhetoric around the war in Ukraine is a lot of this this don't escalate this kind of very war fatigue friendly narratives that oh we need to be spending more money at home or on countering China. Um, I mean, a, a lot of that is just to attack Biden just for easy domestic political points, and so it might not be reflective of actual Republican. 
uh, policy. But I mean, on the other hand, it, it's pretty clear that um, the, the 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 Republican Party um, is 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 much less supportive of of uh, the U.S. U.S.'s support for Ukraine. And so, I mean, look, it's it's quite conceivable that uh, a, a new not not only a new U.S. president um, from the Republican Party or just changes in in Congress could result in less military support for Ukraine. And that would be disastrous for Ukraine and might and might mean that 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 Russia wouldn't actually be dealt the strategic defeat that it's that it's on the verge of, of receiving uh, and could actually claw victory from the jaws of, of defeat. So that's why it's still way, way, way too early to, you know, cast the die on how this is all going to shake out um, politically. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it's a notable visit for the, the history books, but whether it you know, results in in the things that it presumably seems to be hinting at it is still up for the up up for debate. And we had the Munich uh, Security Conference last week as well. Um, are there any kind of key takeaways you think that will have an impact on the war in Ukraine? Yeah, uh, for me, well, first off, the, a general point about the conference is that we all know that the the biggest results of, of that conference in particular are not necessarily the things said from the stage. It's you know, you have all of these experts having all of these meetings, including small private conversations, and you know there 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 could be some um, agreements and developments and discussions that you know are don't get publicly reported on that that are still significant. Um, the for me, the biggest thing that was reported publicly was the stuff related to um, the the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken warning his Chinese counterpart um, about the 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 risks of providing increased military support for Russia, which he said essentially China would seek to do secretly. Um, that makes perfect sense because it's very much in China's interest to make sure that this war continues going on. Um, that's that's because uh, it's right. It's the best way to draw Western resources, European, American resources that otherwise would be spent on, you know, doing things like countering China are instead spent somewhere else. And then secondly, um, the, the continuation of the war uh, makes Russia more dependent on China and increases China's negotiating leverage over Moscow and essentially is, has started reducing Moscow to vassal status to China. Russia is entirely dependent on on China for key imports and exports. If Russia could not export what it exports to China, it would be an economically grave situation. If Russia could not import what it imports from China, uh, Russia would be in economic collapse. So this just makes Russia even more dependent on China. And so I, I, that's why I think a really big risk to flag for everybody right now is that, I mean, I think the Chinese are looking at this and saying we are motivated to secretly su- provide military support mm. for Russia. Mm. Russia, you know, needs artillery ammunition now. Russia needs uh, electronics now. It needs it would want missiles now. And if, you know, the the the, the relationship is, is as close as, as a lot of, you know, the, the Chinese and the Russians let on, I'm sure that the, the first thing the Russians are asking for are, you know, provide greater military support. And the Chinese say, oh, we would love to, but we have to do it secretly so as to not put our own economy at risk of sanctions, which would be damaging to us. But at the end of the day, they say, would that I mean that's a big risk, and we're going to do everything to avoid it? But we we it's really in our strategic interest to support Russia, and so I think that they are going to come to that determination, and then it's going to come down to how hard does the U.S. get with these sanctions that it's threatened? I mean, it came out in an interview that President Biden gave recently that he'd essentially threatened Xi with the end of Western investment in China. He said he would attempt to organize, in, you know, slowdowns of Western investment in China if China militarily supported Russia. 
and now we're, we're creeping towards that. So this decoupling of the West from China that's been talked about as something, you know, an ongoing process that's long down the road, it could start increasing pace, I think, maybe faster than people are, are anticipating right now. I, I must admit, I don't know why I thought it was stupid. I didn't even consider the Chinese angle on things. There. That's really, truly fascinating, actually. So you, you feel then, yeah, China might try and prolong this war just so they can kind of benefit from it in many respects. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do kind of think. And that's that's why I, I so skeptically, you know, related. There was also this talk of a Chinese... <laughs> peace plan, uh, right? There's no reason to believe that a Chinese peace plan is will make any meaningful contribution to the, nego- the, the current negotiations between Russia and Ukraine or a peace deal or anything like that. The, the, the Chinese want a deal that you know supports what Russia's already done. And we know that within China, only Russian narratives about the war are accepted. Something I've kind of been following closely as a kind of a pet project, if you will, is um, in, in cooperation with our, our China analyst is are Ukrainian narratives penetrating within China like at all? Or is it all getting shut down by Chinese censors? And the answer is that that the Chinese censors, you know, um, amongst all the other domestic China, all the things that they need to censor, the fact that they would go to such probity and care to make sure that pro-Ukrainian narratives are not penetrating into China, I think is um, is notable because otherwise you would have Chinese people, you know, regular people, then let alone party members, others questioning: Is our support for Russia really in our strategic interests? Would it be better to stick up for the principles and in, in the in the UN Charter and territorial integrity? Because territorial integrity is what we care a lot about, because that's what how we our upper hand in the Taiwan situation, etc. But it doesn't look like um, you, the Ukrainian narratives are really penetrating within China. And so that means that Chinese support for Russia's policy is going to remain strong within the party amongst the Chinese mm. people, etc. I, I have a couple of friends who are based in China who are connected to me on Facebook. and I, So I'm assuming that any pro-Ukrainian posts I've ever put up don't make it into their feed. Is that right? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I, would pre- I would presume so. The biggest thing that kind of happened on this front is the Chinese allowed the Ukrainian foreign minister to post one op-ed about a month into the war in a major Chinese newspaper. Mm. But that was really the only chance that the Ukrainians got to make their case to the Chinese people. Otherwise, China has almost had a, has a policy of just ignoring Ukraine, acting like it doesn't exist, which which did not used to be China's policy toward Ukraine. Actually, Ukraine used to be part of uh, you know infrastructure in- initiatives and bringing Chinese goods to the West and, uh, and, and things like that. And the, 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 the Chinese never re- recognized the annexation of Crimea, for example. So they, they could have been much closer and were not. Um, but right now we're seeing this Chinese policy of, of basically ignore Ukraine. Well, thank you very much for that. So um, when we last spoke, we were talking about kind of the, the how the winter was going to impact the war in Ukraine. So I suppose the first kind of question around all that is, um, what is the current current situation on the ground? And then how do you feel this war is going to kind of progress over the spring ahead? Yeah, the, I mean, the situation on the ground is that um, of this Russian winter offensive that the Ukrainians warned of, um, began. It probably began three or four weeks ago. Um, it began when Russia began these attacks really along most of the front in, in, in Ukraine right now. The main two areas were around this, this city of Ugladar in the south. This is southern Donbass. This is actually the closest point between Ukrainian-held territory and uh, the, the, the Sea of Azov. So it would make sense that, that the Russians would attack there. And then the other main um, kind of thrust was by the city of Krimina, which is was which is up in farther north. Um, and then and then of course there was this 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 continued Russian effort toward Bakhmut. That's actually a, a slightly 
um, separate thing that's related to the Wagner group and you, you have getting Prigozhin. And basically, uh, my, my guess is that Prigozhin made some uh, uh, big promises either to the Ministry of Defense or to Putin himself about, oh, we're going to take this city or we're going to keep doing this and this is how we're going to prove Wagner's worth, etc. Particularly in an environment where the Ministry of Defense, the regular Russian army, was saying, no, we're not going to do any attacks. We're going to um, you know, sit back, prepare for a future offensive, prepare for Ukraine's own offensive, etc. And Wagner was kind of the only one saying, "No, we're gonna, we want to try to maintain the initiative." So they said yes, uh, but the, but those Wagner attacks still haven't seized the city. They've taken you know major casualties, um, and, and and that's 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 ongoing with this current offensive. Um, and yeah, the, the goal of Russian offensives is to take as much territory as they can in the Donbass to get closer to that political objective uh, of seizing this territory. And they would like to do all of that um, to before a lot of these Western weapons um, start arriving in Ukraine. Continue to move the front line forward, uh, and then dig in deeper only once they've 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 moved the front line forward. I mean, the, the the bottom line is that the land bridge to Crimea is still very vulnerable, and so Russia's motivated to keep move, moving the front line in. Um, so right, I mean, so th- that is the winter offensive. I mean, some you know, Western press reports were kind of oh you, you know. There was all this talk of Belarus and, you know, new axes, the, the, and it doesn't look like anything like that is going to take place. The, the slightly more likely, sec, you know, opening of a second front would be around the city of Kharkiv, I think, but it's still relatively unlikely because it would essentially amount to Russia throwing a lot of these newly mobilized, um, poorly trained, poorly equipped soldiers into an offensive towards a city that, you know, the Russian regular army um, that had been training for this could, couldn't achieve. And so I'm doubtful. I think that Russia is going to, you know, pour more resources into what it's doing now and then sit back and say, OK, we, we did what we could. And then now we're going to sit back and prepare for Ukraine's offensive, which is going to come later in the spring. So the UK is just sort of committed to supplying long range weapons to Ukraine. And prior to this, we've had um, obviously there's been a request by Zelensky for fighter jets. He gave a very historic speech just in Britain just a couple of weeks ago. And then we've had this sort of um, kind of not, not drama, but a bit of a debate about tanks. And it's taken a while to sort of start getting tanks in. So I suppose with this commitment for long-range weapons and a potential, there hasn't been a commitment yet for jets that I know of, but there might be one soon. You know, how likely is it that these weapons are going to kind of get to Ukraine, and how effective will they be in in that? Regarding the the long-range weapons, I think that that is really the most important weapon or capability that's being discussed right now. Uh, Ukraine needs those longer-range weapons to be able to strike deeper into areas that the Russians currently think are safe to position their equipment, their their supply dumps, etc. Um, and so that that's the most significant thing. Also an environment where Ukraine is attempting to strike southward, a lot of a lot of those ammunition dumps, logistics all run through Crimea. So Ukraine would need to begin striking into Crimea or at least cutting off the, the transport to and from Crimea to the land bridge. So that's why those long range capabilities are important. And I mean, yeah, and it looks like Ukraine will receive those as far as how much of them and when it's all still very hazy. Um, you know, right. The, the UK has also said that they're going to be doing this long range stuff. I think regarding the UK's long range stuff, it's even hazier what like what systems they're they're literally even talking about there's the current range of of ammunition for the high mars system that ukraine has received um the precision mlr mlrs and then the the us has said that they're going to give this longer range um glsdb um which is about double the the current range um the, the current range uh is, is is something like 50 kilometers if i'm not i'm not mistaken 
uh, or, or is it? Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, eighty like eighty-ish kilometers. Um, and then and then the the GLSDB would be like one hundred and sixty-ish kilometers, mm-hmm. one hundred fifty. And Ukraine really needs that. I mean, they hope to receive that. I'm not sure what the longer-range capability the UK is is hinting that they could provide. But yeah, I mean, this all remains to to be seen. Uh, and it's not the long-range capabilities that the Ukrainians want. There was a lot of talk about another system, uh, Atacams, which is three hundred kilometers, even longer. Um, it doesn't look like the U.S. is going to give that. It doesn't look like the U.S. is going to give permission for other countries to give it either. Um, I think the, the U.K. may or may not have Atacams. I can't remember. But it doesn't look like there's going to be a development there because presumably they're worried about Ukrainians using these weapons to not strike within Ukraine's internationally recognized border, but to strike in Russia. And that's something that they don't want. And, and that makes sense. The Ukrainians are highly motivated to strike deep within Russia. There's already been these Ukrainian strikes deep within Russia on Russia's strategic aviation, which Putin actually cited his speech today is one of the reasons that the Russia's leaving the the arms control treaty because he said, look, the Ukrainians using Western support are striking deep inside Russia. The Ukrainians are highly motivated to do that because the Ukrainians feel that's one of the only ways to really degrade support for the war within Russia. So they want to do that. They're just going to have to do that with their own capabilities but they, that they make domestically. Um, regarding the fight, the, the the jets. Yeah, I mean, it looks like the, the jets are not going to make it to, to the front in time for you when Ukraine would like to do this offensive. Um, I mean, the, the, the jets training tra- takes weeks and weeks. Numbers have been thrown around. People have said like four months at the earliest, three months maybe if you really rush the whole thing. But again, it still all depends on uh, the actual deliveries and then, you know, the, the training for the specific jet, for the specific mission. So, like, for example, one of the things these these Ukrainian jets would or Western jets provided to Ukraine would be doing would be SEAD, right? So suppression of enemy air defenses. That's a whole other mission type that you need. You, know, you need additional training for, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, a lot of these numbers that have been thrown around have been kind of optimistic. And so I'm skeptical that we're really going to see these these jets soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, practically as well, like they're basically going to have to send out pilots to go and receive the training, and those pilots then won't be available to defend Ukraine during that time. Yeah, that, that that's true. Although, what I will say is that like one of the reasons that I don't think these jets are really a priority or even needed for Ukraine's own offensive is is that Ukraine is is growing anti air, you know, ground based anti air capabilities. R- really, both both sides do. Both sides have pretty extensive um, anti air, and it, it's 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 growing, um, and that's why the Russians have been afraid to fly their own jets close to, to the front. They've been, um, you know, dropping dumb bombs in, in very safe ways to, to keep their jets as far away from the front as possible. I mean, I, I think that speaks to itself that the Russians are scared of the anti-air capabilities the Ukrainians already have. And so, right, the jets would just be kind of all about securing Ukraine's long-term independent ability to secure its skies. I'm positive that Western jets will end up in Ukraine eventually. I mean, it's it's essentially 100% because the only alternative would be continuing to procure like older Soviet and Russian-made aircraft mm. for Ukrainians, mm. which just doesn't make a lot of sense given that Ukraine's switching to all these other Western and NATO standards. And it's not like the the, the West has tons of, of actually these older, I mean, it's easier to get F-16s than these older, you know, systems at this point because so many of them have already been used and destroyed, et cetera. Yeah. Do Poland still have any... Um... Was it Su-27s? I can't remember. I thought Poland had a bit of a stockpile of some Soviet or Russian jets at one time. Yeah, yeah, they do. So there was two. There was mm. Slovakia and Poland both have MiG-29s that they very early on offered up. Um, there was a whole snafu with you know, what the logistics of delivering them, and so it didn't happen at the time. But yeah, I mean, mm. I think that that's another kind of signpost for the Western jets being provided is 
they say, well, yeah, I mean, if we're going to provide these Western jets, we should also, you know, as a preparatory step, we can also provide these older uh, Soviet um, jets. And so, yeah, I think that's another step that we should look out for. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, thank you very much for all that. One other thought as well is like about the missile defense. So um, do you think the Ukrainians will be getting anything like the Patriot system? And um, also, do you have any insight as to why Israel has not wanted to share its Iron Dome system, which would be a very good uh, system in Ukraine and any other lethal aid? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with the second one on Iron Dome. Um, my understanding of why the Israelis don't provide Iron Dome is that so there's a new government in Israel um, that your listeners may may be aware of. This is the uh, return to power of Benny Netanyahu. One of his signature foreign policy objectives pieces, which dates back to you know all, more than a decade ago of one of his since he's been a, 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 an Israeli prime minister, has been closer relations with Russia maybe um, uh, maintaining a close cooperation, cooperative relationship um, to try to use that um, as Israel, you know, conducts its policy in the Middle East. Um, one of the big ways that it re- this reflects itself is how the Israelis do all kinds of strikes within Syria, but Russia is the air force responsible for securing the skies over Syria, which is like essentially a client state of Russia at this point, right? But Israel does all kinds of strikes there, and so it, it needs to, you know, it, it it doesn't want its jets to be shot down by Russia. So um, there's kind of a, there's there's a there's a there's a kind of a constant deconfliction going on there. And more broadly, um, yeah, I mean, is, Benny Netanyahu really wanted Russia to be this country that would, you know, help Israel with vis-a-vis Iran and vis-a-vis uh, uh, Saudi Arabia to a lesser extent and, and things like that um, because we're, it's hard for Israel to find other powerful allies that can you know help it and, and, and apply pressure in, in, in certain negotiations but now right given what we've been seeing there's a lot of questioning of Israel was this whole policy like we're he's trying to be close with Russia and all we see is Russia going growing closer to Iran and yeah. it, I mean it, it's, it yeah. hasn't really worked out. Um, and so mm. that's why the previous Israeli government that just left office um, several months ago, um, you know, they had they had kind of been creeping towards greater support of Ukraine. Um, and um, but but there was also, you know, not desire to kind of get openly get involved, do their own sanctions, do their own weapons deliveries, et cetera, openly. Um, and it, lo- it looks like, you know, ben Netanyahu is trying to kind of go back to preserving relations with Russia. But the thing is that now public opinion in Israel is moving in a certain direction where um, Israelis are, you know, the, the Russian foreign minister, uh, 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 the, the Russian foreign minister has made anti-Semitic, strange anti-Semitic remarks on multiple occasions. A lot of the Israelis are, are kind of concerned about the state of anti-Semitism within Russia and basically kind of the, the trajectory of Russia's policy. And so now Netanyahu is kind of holding on to this policy, even as, you know, the Israelis are, are less into it, and as strategically it's become clear that it's not doing a whole lot for Israel. And so that's why this discussion of Iron Dome is is kind of coming once again to the to the fore. I don't I don't think that they're gonna supply anything like that. That's um, you know, it's pretty it's pretty advanced and they, they want it they it's expensive, they want it for their own capabilities, et cetera. But it's 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 a it's a possibility, and I know that maybe the Ukrainian or maybe the Israelis are they thinking what we could do more to covertly support Ukraine, particularly if now the Iranians are getting to test their drones in Ukraine, do all these things great for Iran there? 
then maybe the Israelis could quietly change their policy. The key word being quietly. I think publicly mm. Netanyahu is going to remain, retain his previous policy, but quietly mm. there could be a small change. Mm. Any any thoughts on why Netanyahu is sort of pursuing such a close relationship with Russia? Is it because he's concerned of declining American support in the future, or is it something more ideological? Or do we know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, th- I think that both of those two. Mm. played a role um in 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 the beginning um but i think Mm. at this point a lot of it is just kind of an inertia and it's always embarrassing i mean it would be i mean any other policy would be a recognition that his previous like a uh, a huge pet project of his for the past 10 plus years was a failure (laughs) so in a line in a line (laughs) where he can't like that can't be the policy right he's got to make it way more subtle and so i think it'll be about oh we're gonna you know I think one of the first things the the new foreign minister said when they got came to power is we're going to be way more we're going to be speak a lot less about our policy about Ukraine and Russia. So they're they're kind of just saying that they're making the relationships a, a lot less hazier and they're going to be mm. less declarations about it. But I, I think essentially inertia is is a big re- reason for it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. One other story that's sort of come up recently is about sort of um, a lack of ammunition supplies or a shortage of ammunition supplies for supplying Ukraine. I was wondering if you had any sort of insight into those uh, supposed shortages. So, right. The Ukrainians are desperately short of ammunition, artillery ammunition in particular. Um, and, I mean, it, it the, the the NATO Secretary General, uh, Jen Stoltenberg, um, at the most recent Ramstein meeting... Uh, of Ukraine's defense donors said some pretty remarkable things about how these shortages are. He even called mm. for artillery ammunition producers to increase ships and work on weekends. Um, working on weekends is really something that, like, you know, for civilian industries are more likely to consider only in a state of, like, wartime, right? Because, I mean, how you're going to provide the the, stimu- the economic stimulus needed to to pay um, workers to, to work weekend shifts um, is, is is pretty big deal, and there's no indication that that's taken place. But the fact that he would even float that idea, I think, is indicative of how bad the shortages are, have become. And that's because, you know, we've seen, so the U.S., for example, said we're going to increase our 155-millimeter uh, artillery ammunition production sixfold but by 2025. Well, Ukraine doesn't need <laughs> artillery ammunition in 2025. It needs artillery ammunition like months from now for its own offensive. And so, I mean, that's really kind of the worry that sprung up is that we're not seeing the orders and we're not seeing the evidence that the artillery ammunition is growing quickly enough for the Ukrainians. And so that's a very, very real um, concern uh, in my mind. It goes the other way for for the Russians. Um, They don't have enough artillery ammunition. Even just recently, the Wagner Group is saying we... Um, we're, we're not getting enough artillery ammunition, um, et cetera. The thing, though, is that Russia is already starting from a much higher, like, continuation point. Mm. Um, they're, mm. they're still using some, something like three to four times um, what Ukraine is using. Um, and while, uh, you know, they, they, they can't produce enough to replace what they're using, um, they, they can. It, it still appears that they can maintain a higher rate for longer than the Ukrainians can, and that just means that you know every day of the war, the Ukrainian, the Russians are firing more artillery ammunition, and that makes it harder to. I mean, that's just devastating um, for for the other side. So 
that's I mean that everything related to 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 that topic is definitely very concerning in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is the one of the concerns I always had. I felt like um, it appeared like Russia could still just basically just because of the ammunition supplies and things kind of outgun Ukraine over a longer period of time and kind of grind them down. I mean, you know being very general Russian strategy appears to be a strategy of brute force most of the time, looking at sort of previous conflicts and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have, they, they say that we have the manpower advantage um, mm. and we domestically produce our weapons, whereas the Ukrainians are dependent on the West for the deliveries of the, of the ammunition they need to survive. So they think that with those two factors, they, they, they tend to think that, that that's the, and then their, their economy is stable in the long term. That's the other really big thing. As long as Russia can export its oil, uh, which which is something like, um, I mean, it's 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 twenty percent of GDP. I think forty percent of the budget, almost sixty percent of exports historically. I mean, if Russia can continue to sell its commodities to the world, then it's it's not going to be in serious risk economically. So, in the in that environment, Russia's saying, yeah, we're we we can sit back and 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 let the the political will in the West die, uh, and then we're going to basically get. Uh, something good enough that we can easily call a victory unfortunately that's that's my fear that we're that's that we're we're the trajectory we're we're on and so that's why i think that i mean the the west really does need to step up support it does i mean we need to have president biden tomorrow saying you know i'm you know i'm you know ordering our domestic artillery ammunition manufacturers to um provide sufficient economic stimulus to keep those plants opening on the weekends the same thing needs to happen in europe honestly although i'm very skeptical that there's any political will for that in most in most of europe unfortunately but i mean those are the kind of more decisive steps we would really need to be seeing uh to have more confidence um in kind of ukraine's long-term ability in my estimation yeah i mean again uh it's me sort of thinking aloud i mean it feels like this year is the crucial year for ukraine because i fear whatever the result of the next election in the u.s i feel like um you know this time next year i feel like it's going to be more contentious to support ukraine than it is at the moment um i mean i could be wrong in that assessment but uh but i, I feel like um yeah if it kind of grinds on for too long people are going to start to tire of it or we're just not going to be able to supply them in the longer term i could be wrong but yeah exactly i mean this goes back to what i was saying earlier about biden's visit to kiev right i mean he wants it to signal that the U.S. is, is right, that Russia is going to be dealt a strategic defeat because, you, I mean, Western support isn't going to end. The problem is that if you if you follow, you know, statements made by members of the U.S. Republican Party, you know that they they're they're really leaning into this rhetoric of, uh, you know, we need to we need to be spending the money that we're spending supporting Ukraine at home. I mean, objectively, it's it's kind of ridiculous because the the, the amounts that we're spending to support Ukraine are still just like a rounding error on our defense budget. Mm. Um, but mm. it's providing much more greater security than the, arguably the whole rest of the budget. Um, because hey, if Russia secures a victory in Ukraine, then all the 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 whole the rest of the budget is going to be had towards resources to, to deal with the, the, the Russian threat and the Chinese threat from a position where they've become emboldened, objectively more powerful, etc., so I mean, it, I mean, it, it defies all logic, strategic logic, in my estimation. But it's a very, very easy political talking point in the United States and in, in Europe, um, essentially. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think it's definitely concerning. But it's that's what's very con- encouraging to the Russians, right? They t- they tend to think that oh, we just need to get um, a, a president from the other party in power in the United States, 
and then we're essentially going to get um, most of what we want. Of course, no U.S. politician is going to, you know, frame it that way, but it, de facto, that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. No, indeed, indeed. When we last spoke, we briefly touched upon the role of intelligence in the war, and I was wondering if you could talk us uh, talk to us a little bit about Ukrainian intelligence services, the SBU, and kind of what's known about their role in the war. Well, we do know that there were some major, um, you know, not surprising at all, that S SBU was a, a bloated, way too large organization, successor or organization to the KGB. Um, m most you know, European countries' domestic security services were not uh, relatively as large as the SBU was. What that meant was that you know it, the, the SBU has a, had a mandate that was too broad and large and had way too many employees and it was way too leaky. And of course, when the invasion happened, there were you know high-level defections, um, uh, traitors uh, in the ranks of the SBU, particularly in southern and eastern Ukraine. Um, and that that was devastating to Ukraine. I mean, one of the biggest ways that that reflected itself, I think, was in the opening war in southern Ukraine. So there, like, there's literally only two real ground entry points between Crimea and southern Ukraine. There are these tiny little isthmuses. Um, of course, any military strategy would involve heavily mining those entrances, and they were heavily mined. But of course, now one of the big topics of investigation within Ukraine is how did the Russians walk through those minefields like it was nothing? Um, and it seems quite obvious that um, either someone from the SBU helped them remove the mines or mm. they the, mm. the mine maps were leaked to them. But everything related to that was 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 very easy to for the Russians to overcome, it appears. Same thing goes for, for even as they move further into southern Ukraine. How did they cross the 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 Antonovsky Bridge across the Dnieper River into Kherson City intact. Um, numerous other bridges um, were were destroyed, but the main road bridge across which almost large parts of the Russian army were able to cross somehow was 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 that bridge that needed to be destroyed. It it, it presumably should have been ordered to be destroyed. There was some speculation that maybe the Ukrainians deliberately left it so that they could destroy it later, so that they could trap the Russians over there, etc. I'm skeptical of that. The Ukrainians would have, I mean, the, the, the Ukrainians wouldn't want the Russians across the river in any case. They would want to keep as much of their territory. I mean, uh, letting the Russians across the river is a very risky military strategy. I think that's doubtful. If I think it's, in long story short, it's likely that tre treachery within the SBU was a major reason why that bridge was not destroyed. Um, and then, yeah, there was this notable instance where I think, you know, hundreds of of, of Ukrainian bureaucrats, um, many of which were, were also SBU officials, you know, are now under investigation and trial in Ukraine for, for, for treason. Um, I mean, the, the good news now, though, is that, like, this has forced a lot of these people to put their cards on the table. And I think that a lot of people who, you know, now there's all kinds of internal, internal investigations, the SBU, and they're, you know, they had a change of leadership, and now they have a kind of a career person there as opposed to a, a crony or, or a, a long-time Zelensky associate who was mainly there for loyalty reasons as, as opposed to competence. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, in general, I think that we, we can be more confident in the state of the SBU now, but it's still a, a very large, potentially problematic um, organization. But I think that they have been effective, though, at stopping a lot of more um, effective things that Russian intelligence could have done. I mean, everything from the, the Russians probably tried to kill Zelensky, in my estimation, that, that, that did not work. The, the SBU got Viktor Medvedchuk, uh, this pro-Russian Ukrainian politician, who was then exchanged for 
a hugely disproportionate number of Ukrainian prisoners of war. That was a, that was actually a big win for them because he had tried he had he had fled he had been in, a, in an unknown location and, and then for them to capture him and exchange him like that was was really good for them. Uh, and then even even more tactical things like look Russia has not been able to, to like Russia is every day trying to destroy Western anti air systems in Ukraine to make its campaign against uh, civilian infrastructure more effective. That for some st- stuff like that, a lot of it you would you actually want on the ground people who are trying to figure out where these systems are hidden, um, and you can have human intelligence help with that. But the the Russians aren't being particularly effective with that. So I mean, there's there's a lot to suggest that you know the the, the SBU is still doing a lot of things that are important for helping Ukraine resist mm-hmm. in the war. Mm-hmm. Oh, brilliant, thank you for that. Um, there've been a few sort of sabotage operations which I think we briefly touched upon earlier that have had a um that have been kind of going on in in deep in Russia. I was wondering if there's any information about who might be responsible for that. Yeah, I think it's safe to assume that um the the SBU or its kind of foreign intelligence um, sister organization are in, involved in some of the explosions that we've seen. Um, the, the main wave of them was back in like April or May, if I'm not mistaken, mm. but quite early in the war. Mm. Um, of course, we, we can't explain, you know, all of them, but it seems quite doubtful that all of them or maybe even a majority of them are related to the SBU, but I think it's not, I think it's probably likely that some of those um, and, and some other more recent explosions could be r- related to um, the, the, the SBU because, I mean, they have a large um, agent network that operates in, in Russia. Um, it's relatively easy for them to operate in Russia um, and that they have no reason not to, right? Um, particularly, they, they, want, they want at least to have those capabilities and to have that possibility to be a restraining factor on Russian conduct. So I continue to think that they, they, they of course, had projects to insert, use refugees to insert agents um, in, into Russia, et cetera. So presumably their their pool of possible agents um, uh, is is has even grown in recent weeks, mm. uh, or sorry sorry since the invasion, um, yeah. because Russia can't track all of the Ukrainian refugees who entered Russia. Um, of course, it it documented them, sent them through these filtration camps, but you know it, it can't monitor them all at all times, etc. Um, so yeah, no, I mean I that that's a very important capability to them, even for things like you know if. If the Russians do, for example, try do do conduct assassinations, political assassinations against Ukra- high-ranking Ukrainian officials, well, it's pretty clear that the, the Ukrainians want the Russians to know that you can't do that because that that would sanction us assassinating your officials within Russia, and that's that's definitely equally dangerous for the Russians themselves. So, yeah, I mean they're they're going to continue those activities, um, but I, I I don't I don't anticipate kind of anything like that, um, but. You know, they, they have capabilities and they're going to try to seek, seek to maintain them. Have those sort of sabotage operations had an effect on the Russian public's sort of view of the war? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, if we talk about the big banner one, the obviously the destruction of the Crimea land bridge, um, I, I, well, I don't know if that, mm. well, I mean, it doesn't matter exactly who it was. It was, it was I guess, SBU and the GUR, the GUR, the, the, the Ukrainian military intelligence organization. Um, yeah, and when they blew up the Crimea land bridge, I mean, that was very embarrassing for Putin, the Russian government, etc., um, and you know, and it, it's obviously military, militarily devastating because that that's that that bridge is used to you know uh, facilitate civilian and military life in in Crimea and therefore the rest of occupied Ukraine. Um, so I mean that those kinds of strikes are are notable, and I mean it led to panic in in Crimea and it led to people trying to flee Crimea back to Russia, and it 
led to people saying, well, hold on, has the special military operation made us safer or less safe? Um, and all of that is, is you know, you know, undermines um, narratives that the, that the Kremlin has used. And so it's it's politically dangerous. But that's that's exactly also why the Ukrainians, you know, having seen the effect of that bridge strike, their conclusion was, oh, like the. This gave us all the signs that we that we would have wanted. So we're continue. We're we're still motivated to to do that kind of sabotage. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for that. Have you got any insight into how President Putin is holding up politically in Russia at the moment? Yeah, I mean, he's he, the the bottom line is that he's he's holding up and his hold on power, you know, remains um, secure. Um, in his speech, he returned to these maximalist conceptions of victory in Ukraine, but he didn't, I mean, he didn't, um, there wasn't this strong sign that he was considering a new mobilization or like a a reformatting of the special military operation into a war or a cancellation of, there's supposed to be a presidential election in Russia a year from now. Um, and he made it sound like that election, that, I mean, I shouldn't even call it election, election in in quotation marks and and an electoral exercise, um, is going to be conducted on schedule as opposed to what some people had been saying, like what election we need, we need a wartime exception. Like the, I mean, how, how can we um, conduct this stressful moment for the political system when it's very obvious what kind of predicament we're in? Um, but it looks like he, he's not going for that approach and he's, he's going to look to conduct that, that election as scheduled and use it to say, Oh my gosh, look how popular I still am. Look how much everybody yeah, supports yeah, yeah. me. So he's, he's still, he's still, but that's notable just because it shows that he still tends to think that even this totally decorative um, electoral exercise is, is somehow useful and necessary and beneficial and um, needed for his political support in Russia. So, I mean, you can you can draw that that conclusion as well. But, you know, otherwise, the Russian people are intimidated. They've seen hundreds of thousands of their compatriots flee the country. They've seen uh, tens of thousands of others um, imprisoned. I mean, there's some very notable cases where, you know, anti-war people are, I mean, um, Ilya Yashin did a, 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 an op-ed in Time recently. He's in, he's in eight, eight years in prison for opposing the war. Another Moscow uh, uh, local council deputy, similar sentence, I think seven or eight years for, for opposing the war. I mean, when you, when you see the cost of eight years in prison for opposing the war, I mean, that has a very chilling, intimidating effect. And that's what's keeping a lot of people who oppose the war, you know, are doing, or, you know, they're, they're telling their friends about it. They may not hide their position, but they're not going to take any action that puts themselves at risk. Um, and so I think, I think that he can keep some st- political stability for that reason. Yeah, indeed. And are we in any increased danger, especially now at the end of the new start treaty, are we in, in any increased danger of this war sort of spiraling out of control and leading to some sort of nuclear confrontation with Russia? I tend, I tend to still not think so. Um, if we look at the strategic Situation. I don't think Russia wants an arms race. I don't think it's going to openly, you know, violate the main provisions of the treaty. Um, but yeah, I mean, look. Overall, Russia, you know, is still going to continue to use nuclear blackmail, and leaving the treaty is part of those nuclear, those vague nuclear blackmail efforts. And yeah, uh, if I mean, how Russia would use nukes is it would use tactical nukes. I think you know, ought to strike the Ukrainian armed forces as a warning to say, look, I mean, if you keep supporting Ukraine, we're going to drop another one and another one and another one because the Ukrainians would not give up after the first tactical nuke use is my estimation. I don't think that, I mean, the, it's something the Russians do not want to do. Um, I'm reminded 
of the the U.S. Uh, Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, back in like May or April, many months ago, said, we're, we're actually surprised that Russia has not ga- engaged in more nuclear blackmail than some of our um, more likely scenarios would have anticipated. I think the reason for that is that the, the Russians are, have calculated that engaging in more hardcore nuclear blackmail is may, is not necessarily in their interest or going to work out well for them. Um, and right, if you... If you, if you engage in more open attempts at it and then it doesn't lead to the Western change in opinion, then that, that, that means that you actually have to follow up on your threat and use nukes. And that's not something that Russia wants to do because that's how you can look at China and India and these major backers. You know, the, the, the leaders of those countries and even their populations are, you know, would, would be kind of rolling their eyes and, and reassessing their their kind of even loose rhetorical um, alignment with Russia. So it, it's not necessarily good good for Russia. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that we're necessarily going to see that. I think that's not going to come into play until, if, or I should say, if the Ukrainians retake the land corridor and Putin feels that there's a real risk to Crimea because then um, Crimea is, this is for Putin, this, this jewel and this strategically important territory for him. And I think that he, he probably would try to draw a nuclear red line on Crimea. But the thing is, I don't think that the Ukrainians are even considering militarily retaking Crimea because it's not feasible because just as there's only those two ways into Crimea and I don't think that they, they can really militarily retake it. Yeah, no, fair enough. Do you think we're any closer to really seeing a Ukrainian victory this year? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of spoke about this a bit earlier. I, I just, yeah, what I mean, look, Ukrainian victory is retaking the land bridge. It doesn't look to me that they're they're getting the weapons quickly enough and in large enough quantities that they would need to do that unfortunately and without the corridor it becomes much harder for ukraine to hope for political change in russia to change things um the ukrainians are fine to sit back and play defensive too um not mm. that they think that they're particularly advantaged in that vis-a-vis russia um but just because it's really their only other option. But the thing is that they they really need the corridor to have a reasonable hope of political change in Russia. Otherwise, them sitting back would just involve Putin being able to conduct a power transfer at his leisure and a very similar imperialist, uh, fascist, essentially Russian government to, to remain in power. Um, so, and so, no, I mean, so, the, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I took your question too strategically, but... Unfortunately, no, I'm very concerned that we're not seeing the things for Ukraine to, to win this year. I mean, it needs a lot. It needs a manpower advantage. It needs, I mean, it honestly needs more mobilization. It's done a little bit more mobilization. Uh, I think the best estimates are that it has about 700,000 mobilized personnel. Um, I mean, as you know, for attacking forces in a war, you want to have at least two to one, preferably three to one localized you know, you really want to have a pretty big advantage. And it doesn't look like Ukraine really has a very big manpower advantage, let alone the, the weapons that, that it needs. So, yeah, I, I think that I think we're in a, a really dangerous um, phase. And, you know, I, I just I really hope that we the West can really step up and provide more um, sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any final thoughts before we part ways today? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that, you know, it, it's, you know, a lot of this is dependent on us. Putin s- still tends to think that the kind of political support is going to wane in the West. But I think that if people in the West kind of had a had a clearer sense of what's actually at, taking place and what's actually at stake, 
um, then there might be more willingness to, to maintain the current support for Ukraine. In my estimation, you know, like we have seen a, a public polling suggest that there's been a decline in a willingness to support Ukraine. But I mean, I, I think a lot of that might might be, um, you know, related to the fact that that the West isn't stepping up. Western politicians aren't stepping up as much as needed. So uh, what we do know is that that people are more likely to support Ukraine when they believe that Ukraine can actually win. And so what I also want to say is that Ukraine still actually can win win this. Um, they, they just need that support. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we just need to, you know, you know, pressure. Um, our politicians to to let them know that hey, I mean, this is in our interests, and we need to act sooner rather than later. Um, and you know, twenty four, twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five um, is is really not not good enough. No, no, indeed. Well, Matthew, thank you for your time today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? So you can find my work on Rain dot com, Risk Assessment Network and Exchange, but and also on our uh, our, our website, our former website, Stratfor, where a lot of our articles are available. Um, for any 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 but any any anyone can subscribe uh, and and read um, our, our 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 articles there as well. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 